is Friday, May 29th, the last Friday in May, and this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for this week. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and want to give you a rundown of what we've got in store for you this week. Another really interesting show with a lot of variety to it. We're going to be talking about the primary election, which is next Tuesday. We've got a lot coming up on that. You'll hear later on in the show that the line panel will be looking at and breaking down some of the legislative races, key legislative races that we'll be uh, honing in on for the primary election. And we've also got Heather Ferguson from Common Cause New Mexico and Gabe Sanchez. He's a UNM political science professor, also a principal at Latino Decisions. And they are talking a lot about how, again, the push towards uh, absentee voting during this primary election, how it's impacting things like voter turnout. You're also going to hear a lot of discussion about an unintended consequence when the Supreme Court decided we couldn't turn the uh, primary election into a mail-in election, and the push went from there to the absentee ballots and getting as many people, uh, registered voters, eligible voters, to apply for absentee ballots. Another thing that happened was that the voting centers, a lot of them were closed as we efforted to limit the number of places that people could vote on Election Day and in early voting. And that, of course, was to try to curb the spread of COVID-19 and keep not only voters but poll workers safe. But that's hitting especially tribal communities very hard as they're losing a lot of their voting places and have to travel quite a distance if they're going to vote in person on election day or early this Saturday. So you're going to hear a lot about that. You're going to hear the latest on the COVID-19. The governor, after our taping this week, but on Thursday afternoon, end of day, she uh, issued a new public health order for the state that will go into effect on Monday, June 1st, that opens up businesses quite a bit more. The big takeaways there are in dining services and restaurants in a limited capacity and under certain situations and circumstances can proceed as well as um, salons, hair salons, nail salons can also open by appointment only and with certain conditions met as well. Uh, Malls can also open to a percentage of capacity. Uh, The big things that are still missing. Oh, and gyms also is in that list of that can open at 50% of max capacity. The big uh, holdout still has to do with uh, some state parks. They're going to start opening in a strategic manner. Also, the big one are churches are still limited to, I believe it's 25% capacity. That was the latest from the governor. The um, gating still continues to be on track, according to the governor and her uh, secretaries, but uh, those are the changes she announced this week that will go into effect soon. And so we wanted to start off sort of there in terms of the public health uh, response and reaction in the state with our line panelists. This week we are joined by regular Laura Sanchez, also uh, former state senator Diane Snyder is back with us this week, and we also have Dave Mulryan of Everybody Votes. He's got a lot of really interesting things to say in those election segments, but we're going to start off by heading over to host Gene Grant and the line to talk about the latest on COVID-19 in New Mexico. Another tentative step closer this week as Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced restaurants can open patios with certain limits. 
But COVID watchers have their gaze trained on southern New Mexico, where Human Services Secretary Dr. David Scrace warned of a brewing outbreak. We have a seasoned group with us to get the latest. We welcome Diane Snyder, line regular and former state senator. We welcome attorney and line regular Laura Sanchez also. And we welcome line guest Dave Mulryan, founder of Everybody Votes. And speaking of voting, we've all heard about voting with your feet. What we saw after businesses were allowed to open, Dave, is that many stayed closed and many shoppers stayed home. What did you make of the opening and how it went out there? What was your observation? Well, you know, I, I was downtown and I was talking to someone who owns a coffee shop and they, they actually were essential on some level. They were allowed to be open. You know, being open is one thing. Being open and having customers is another thing. And right. so um, on some level, when you, you have to scale up, you have to bring back your employees, you have to start paying those employees. And I'm thinking that a lot of restaurants, um, it's a tenuous business at best. And, and I think that it's very difficult for them to scale to the point where they can provide service without continuing to lose a lot of money. And so it's, again, you know, people are going to have to be making judgments based on what they know about their business, what it's going to cost to bring in money. And I think that, you know, some amount of government intervention on some level provide more money for businesses to, if you want them to survive. And owners are going to have to make the decision. Do I want, someone said to me, I'm a qualified for an SBA, Small Business Administration loan. Yet do I want that loan? Because it's going to be, it may be forgivable, but is it going to take me to the promised land? Am I going to get past the point where my restaurant can again be fully functional and making a profit? Or am I taking on debt that I'm not, it's not going to ensure that I make it? There's a lot of very hard questions that you're going to have to be weighing. Yeah. Hey, Laura, the idea, Dave brought up restaurants and I'm glad he did. You know, some of the polling shows that people, they want to go out to restaurants, but they're very antsy about it. And restaurateurs have a challenge to meet an antsy public halfway. Outdoor patio dining, 50% capacity, is that enough to get it done? I think it's a good start. I actually went out um, on Wednesday because I could not wait to go out and um, enjoy uh, a drink, frankly. <laughs> I saw your post on Facebook, so, it looked yummy. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up, uh, I went out to, I called first and I found out that Ginger was going to have their patio open. So I went there and they were uh, well prepared. They had um, chairs spaced out. Uh, they they were in between um, seatings. They were sanitizing the the space, the table, the chairs. Um, you basically wore your mask until you were seated, mm -hmm. and then you were able to obviously not have your mask while you were eating and drinking. Um, and it was really nice. I mean, there were some kinks to work out. I think they were still trying to scale up the the number of servers, um, and and they had more food. They have they had a limited menu, which helped. Um, and so I think that that was definitely a very good start. I saw a lot of familiar faces and folks from the West side that were like me, just um, itching to get out and be able mm -hmm. to, um, you know, spend some time um, socializing with, uh, with loved ones or family or whoever, friends, mm -hmm. close friends. Um, and so we, we did that on Wednesday and that was really nice. Um, yeah. But I think that it will be a challenge once it scales up to 50% um, capacity or whatever with it like inside dining dining in not in the patio i think that's going to be a challenge because you just have a you know space limitations and right. uh you know owners uh, restaurant managers have to figure out how to get people in there's also the issue of people who are on unemployment that mm -hmm. don't seem to want to come back in some cases so i think that's all a challenge for them good point there senator i'm interested in your thoughts about where the republican party and steve pierce's chair have been coming from you know the house republican caucus 
relentless in their criticism of where the governor's been coming from on this. And I have to say, when you think about where these folks are literally coming from physically in other parts of the state that have not been hit that hard, you can understand where they're coming from. But, you know, your sense of where the pushback is right now. I, I think you hit on the point, Gene, is we say everybody's being treated the same, but we, we know that's not true. Yeah. San Juan County, McKinley County, it's based on their needs. They need more help. So they they are more restrictive in their their uh, limitations. Mm-hmm. Well, Southeast New Mexico is so low on the number of Ill, uh, cases that they've had is they don't understand why. And I that point, I concede to them. I think that's absolutely true. If we're going to make a difference in northeast, northwest, pardon me, New Mexico, San Juan County and McKinley, make them more stringent, then why would we not look at and sectionalize the state and make southeast New Mexico more lenient in their restrictions? I think if that had occurred, you would have seen very little of the uh, lawsuits and the continued demonstrations and the anger, to be quite truthful, the anger that you're seeing. And I think that Mr. Pierce is picking up on, because Southeast New Mexico is, in, of course, Northwest, is the strongest area of, of conservative, not just Republican, but right. conservative uh, uh, New Mexicans. So they don't understand why they're being penalized when, in fact, they're they're much safer to be in that part of the country. Right. I. I don't, I think it's a message. I don't know that the the courts will hear it. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's hoping that things will open up before they have to do that. Right. But the message, I think the message is, is we should have been treated differently in a positive manner, just like San Juan and McKinley, the Northwest mm-hmm. was being enclosed in more, uh, more stringent uh, regulations on them. So I think that's, that's what the basis is for this. Right. It's just the frustration and the anger. Gotcha. Hey, Dave, you know, interestingly, as I hear Senator talking and just sort of getting ready for our conversation today, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you think the governor has had her hand forced a little bit when you think about it. When you talk about, you know, Texas, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, we're surrounded by states that are relaxing things. Right. There's a certain point where you can hold your ground, but it starts to work the whole thing sort of backwards. Well, it does. But I think, but but you can say whatever you want to say. And yes, there are individual things that are wrong here. Yet Wired Magazine showed that the safest place in the country right now is New Mexico because we have done the things that we need to do. And I think one of the traps that we've fallen into, and this is not a surprise in 2020 America, we have politicized pretty much every aspect of the pandemic. It is a public health issue as much as it's anything. And the idea that you go left and I go right, and I'm a conservative, so I believe we should be opening versus I'm a lefty. I believe we should do whatever we need to do. Those all, that's what we've done. We have politicized it. But also the economic question is when you need to work because you need to eat, you need to work. And so, you know, there's got all these, all these questions. So I do not envy this governor or any of the governors because there's a lot of balls in the air. And yet, if you make a mistake, people die. So we are down to, let's just give it a tagline, your money or your life. And I don't know where you fall down on it. Right. Senator, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, actually, let me go to uh, Laura first. We've got about two minutes. Maybe we can split this between you and, and Senator. Special sessions on track for June 18th. What's the prudent strategy at this point when you look at that? 
Well, I think they're going to have to look at everything on the table. I mean, I, I don't know how you address any aspect of, of our uh, budget without considering everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think education is going to unfortunately suffer some cuts. I think we're going to see some changes from what the last budget looked like. And they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on some of the things that they increased from the previous budget. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, there's just a lot of moving parts. And I know that there's already you know, groups and um, constituencies looking at their particular area. And I know a lot of very, very nervous administrators and teachers because of the potential changes coming up. Yeah. Senator, what's your, what's your thought on that in the special? I, two things. The thing that's fascinating me the most uh, is uh, how they're going to do it logistically. That's a whole different conversation. Yes. But I think I, I was reading uh, Senator John Arthur Smith says, well, I think with the federal money coming in and our reserve, incredible reserve, we may not have to make as many cuts. Well, maybe I've become cynical in my own age. But but my very first thought was, well, yeah, we'll do that during this special. Well, and then we'll have election day. And then in January, we'll slash the slash and burn everything because we will see that we didn't because that federal money is not going to keep coming in. Right. It's it's one time help right now. Mm -hmm. And it would make things easier for all the people that we they gave money to the, in the session, this mm -hmm. uh, this session. But I just can't see that it can hold. It's so I think there will. I think either in this the special or in the general uh, at regular session in January, you'll see a lot of cuts. Good point to finish. Oil and gas is. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Oil and gas is. Yeah. All right. No worries. No worries. That's how Zoom it, goes. It, Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> the public health threat from COVID-19, of course, is not going anywhere. That's been a message the governor has given us time and time again. The disease hasn't gone anywhere, but we have done a good job as a state flattening the curve and making sure that our health care system does not get overwhelmed. And so that led to a lot of the, the changes with businesses and things reopening. So there is a lot more focus now as well on economic recovery in the state. And the governor has tasked a lot of that uh, heavy lifting to her economic recovery council. There are a bunch of people on that council from a cross section of industries and across the state. We wanted to find out a little bit more about the work they've been doing and what their uh, insight is on how we get back on the road to recovery economically here in New Mexico. This is senior producer Matt Grubbs with two members of the Economic Recovery Council now to talk about that. Brian Moore is co-owner of the Clayton Ranch Market. That's a grocery store in the northeastern part of the state. And Christina Campos is the administrator of the Guadalupe County Hospital. That's in Santa Rosa. Thanks both for, for making time. We appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Matt, for having us. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the first Saturday of phase 1A opening, that's the, that's the very beginning of the rollout that you all have been um, keeping an eye on. Um, we saw a lot of retailers, at least in Albuquerque and, and some of the metro areas, decide to, to stay closed. Um, what's behind that for some of them, do you think? Well, I think, uh, and let me, I'll go first quick. I think it's a fear. I think, you know, I kind of envisioned this like people coming out from a Holocaust and, and the sun is shining but, and they're peering out, but they're, they're afraid to venture forward. Uh, uncertainty about uh, how to behave in this new world. I think that's that's a lot of it. And making sure that they're keeping their customers and their employees safe. And Brian, that's well, well said, Christina. I think 
uh, some of that's for sure. Uh, there's still some challenges, I think, with small companies trying to find the right PPE for their 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 employees, particularly. Um, I know a few little businesses in Clayton, I kind of had stored some masks and gloves and sanitizer for them, and they all got opened up. But, uh, but it, there's a little bit of fear factor in there. I'm sure, I'm sure. Brian, um, you're probably a good person to go to for this. Uh, as we look at uh, retailers opening and the things um, that we're calling COVID safe practices, um, are you finding that for some retailers, it's just difficult to get the things that they need to stay open? You know, it's better now than it was. I, you okay. know, we have a store and, and so we've been in probably better shape than most, but boy, for the first four or five weeks, it was just heck getting masks and sanitizer and all those things. And as, as it's progressed along, we're much better off. And, and uh, we try to keep a pretty good supply on hand, not only for our, for our guys, but for other people, other businesses that need some help. Sure, yeah. you're both from rural areas, Christina. Um, yes. Most of the media coverage that we see, of course, is is centered on Albuquerque and, and sometimes Las Cruces, Rio Rancho, Santa Fe, that sort of thing. Uh, what have you seen and, and heard in your part of the state? Well, we've had a couple of flare-ups here in our community. So, uh, you know, recently they listed the top six counties with, uh, you know, the worst numbers per 100,000. And we fell into that, uh, Guadalupe County did. Uh, we have uh, 19 positives, uh, or at the most recent numbers were 19. Uh, so for a population as small as ours, that's a lot. But those flare-ups also created a certain level of awareness and uh, a desire for people to be a lot more careful in the community and safer. So you see the adoption of these uh, CSPs uh, occurring naturally even before a lot of the direction was published. Have you all, or I, I guess you'd probably get reports through the other places in the administration, have you heard from businesses that have questions about, okay, so what is a COVID safe practice for someone in my sector? Yeah, I think we've all got questions about those. And, and uh, you know, we spent, the council spent a week and a half uh, going through all those. And a lot of the work had been, been done before we ever got a chance to see them. So there's a lot of work going on, but at least the industry insiders I worked with the cabinet secretaries to kind of work through those 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 uh, requirements, and I don't think they're they're horrible. The ones I've looked at have not been too bad, at least for our industry uh, in specific. But the the governor's office has published a CSP guideline book. It's on her website, um, and it's really a nice presentation. <clears throat> you can just go through industry by industry, just. And it's pretty easy to do, but I don't know that the word has gotten out there quite as well. I'm still getting calls from, from hotels, for example, and restaurants, for example, about what happens next. So it's out there, but we need to we need to publish it more. Yeah, I think a lot of what we see also is is businesses that have developed their own and they want assurances that they are uh, well uh, developed, that, that they do make sense and that they're in compliance with what uh, you know the state is thinking. Uh, so um, in, in a sense, the, the ERC, the council, didn't just uh, develop policies. In, in many ways, we adopted recommendations that were already out there uh, industry by industry. Okay. Uh, as we look at businesses, in some ways, it seems like they can um, lead us out uh, into the normalization of some of the things like wearing uh, masks in public, continued safe social distancing, um, I picked up some hand sanitizer at a hardware store, a small hardware store the other day, and uh, the owner was reminding customers, hey, we're not out of this. There are actually more people out and about. Keep being safe. Um, 
I would imagine that's exactly the kind of thing you want to see from businesses. But is there something to that idea that they can help us with the normalization um, of, of wearing a face covering or something like that? Yeah, I agree. I agree that uh, both businesses and community leaders, I think uh, there's been a, a concerted effort uh, to get, uh, you know, those people that, that others look up to, uh, to start adopting these practices and, and to help us normalize them. And Brian, how about right. you? Are people anxious to hear that message from the business community as opposed to the, to the government? I think it's, it's more helpful. Um, you know, the government is a, a big, uh, kind of massive force, I guess I should say. And if they see me or the mayor or the county commissioners wearing masks, I think it, it helps to make it more normal. Sure. This is going to be a, a different summer than I think any of us have, have ever had before. Uh, what are some of the changes that we are going to see? My, my mind first goes to the festivals, fairs, mm -hmm. things like that. But at, from your perspective, what are some of the big changes we'll be seeing? I, I think a lot of it will be smaller groups. Um, you know, my community is is popular for Blue Hole and for the Whippet now for the, the water park. And there'll be efforts to get Blue Hole up and running for the scuba divers, but probably on an appointment only basis. Um, the Whippet, I just don't foresee how they'll be able to get it going because it's primarily children and they're... Um, you know, fooling around in the water and, and splashing and, and shoving. And I, I just don't see how you can do that uh, in a safe manner. You can't, you're not going to wear a mask in the water. Uh, so I just, I think there, this summer definitely will not look like last summer, but we do have the challenge of trying to make it uh, as enjoyable as possible. That's a good point, Christina. You know, in our, our community, we have a 4th of July rodeo that we've done for 60 years. And so, um, we're going through the process of canceling it and it's really hard you know, a lot of people are are pretty devoted to being in clayton for the parade the rodeo and the street dance and all those things so it'll be much different from that perspective but i do hope uh, that some of the the mass gathering numbers will be relaxed a little bit so at least larger families can get together and go to the lake or play golf and, and do those kinds of outdoor recreation things as the ERC or the Economic Recovery Council meets and, and discusses the various phases of um, reopening, um, is this the sort of discussion that's happening? You know, how do we get to this point? Or is, tell me how that works. You know, it's a, it's a really, really uh, great uh, committee. Uh, the membership is, is really representative of our state, of industries, of uh, political affiliations and perspectives. Uh, so there's a lot of push and pull. There's a lot of discussion. Um, I own two restaurants. And so one's closed, one's open. I have that perspective. I've got the hospital perspective. Uh, so even within myself, you know, uh, I'm kind of like a, a small um, a microcosm of the community itself that that part of me really wants to move fast and open, but I'm kind of a little afraid to. And then the healthcare part of me is really concerned with inundating my staff and uh, stretching them in a manner that makes it uh, less safe for them. And in a sense, even for the patients, if you've got too many people here at the same time, you're, you're not giving them that personalized care that you're used to giving them. So we've got that push and pull going on, uh, but it's, it's uh, I've really enjoyed the dynamic within it, but these conversations are so common to every single uh, opportunity that we have to meet. 
I think it's a great council too, Matt and, and Christina. And Christina does bring us the two sides of it together. You know, some of us are business guys like me, and we're ready to we're ready to move on. And uh, and Christina can kind of help us understand the other side of that piece, which is really helpful. But it's a good council in terms of, you know, we've got business guys. We've got you know Peter Trevisani that owns New Mexico United. So you know we got a lot of variety of people on it, and they're not shy. They will tell you what they're thinking and what they're hearing, and and so we have some pretty good discussions. But it's a respectful civil group. Yeah. I think you, everybody has the same goal of, of uh, balancing uh, the health of our economy with the health of our people. Sure. I remember the governor, when she formed the council, used the words um, smart and patient. And, and I'm sure that there's a, a balance to strike. How does that work? Do you have a number of meetings uh, yet coming up? And will you be looking at data coming in? from public health experts, um, from, you know, in terms of maybe tax and rev, in terms of what you're seeing for gross receipts tax, that sort of thing. Will, we, will you be meeting throughout the summer? I'll be meeting that. for, yeah, go ahead, Christine. No, no, go ahead. But I, I believe so, right, Brian? I think we'll be meeting through through the summer, at least for the next uh, couple of months anyway, as we look at, at, you know, as we start to reopen what happens with both the health perspectives and, you know, how's the economy doing? Uh, you mentioned it, Matt, some of the businesses haven't opened it yet. And even when they do open, they're not going to probably have as many customers as they did before. So how does that affect all of that going forward? Uh, we're looking at, uh, we've got some subcommittees set up this week that we're going to start looking at possible legislation and, and uh, you know, things that we can help move things along. Yeah, and we've met, uh, depending on the workload, we've met as much as four times in a week uh, and as little as twice in a week. Uh, I think... Uh, it, we are developing, it's, we're, you know, the committee seems to be as fluid as the situation that first we really wanted to focus on, on ways to make uh, businesses safer so that they could open as safely and as, as soon as possible. And now we're starting to look kind of beyond, you know, that close horizon at uh, economic relief, uh, at the long-term uh, economic uh, development of our state. What are we going to look like and do we have the infrastructure in place to help get to that future, for example, broadband. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot, you know, I think the, the governor um, would like to continue having this council uh, meet, but start looking at, at the entire situation from a broader uh, and different perspectives. That's a fascinating idea, um, the, the idea that we might get things like broadband um, security or growth uh, right. Coming out of this, and as as Brian mentioned, looking at the legislative session on on June eighteenth to perhaps um, provide a framework for some of that. Well, the few minutes that we have evaporated pretty quickly, but uh, I really thank you both for for your time and of course for your work on this. Uh, I think it's helpful for a lot of people to hear your perspective. Thanks, thank Appreciate you. you. Stay This is the time of year when a lot of folks in New Mexico are thinking about irrigation, which leads us to um, acequias and the history and the culture around that irrigation practice and system here in New Mexico, a very important one. And it was just a couple weeks ago when normally there would have been celebrations and remembrances and uh, ceremonies honoring San Ysidro, the patron saint of acequias. And, of course, that all had to change because of COVID-19, like so many things in our state right now. 
we wanted to find out a little bit more about those changes as well as the cultural history of acequias, uh, something that I think is a, is a nice change of pace, uh, but it's also an important conversation to have that I think a lot of us are realizing more as we hear stories about the supply chain issues around food systems and really growing closer to our connection to the food we eat, which is a key part of the acequia tradition. Here now is correspondent Laura Pascas and Paula Garcia, the executive director of the New Mexico Acequia Association. Paula Garcia, last week there were ceremonies in honor of San Isidro, the patron saint of farmers and workers. Why is that ceremony so important and what had to be different this year? The reason that San Isidro is so important is that he's the patron saint of farmers and laborers. And on May 15th, it's customary and traditional to ask for a blessing from San Isidro to bless our crops and our acequias, our fields, in hope of a, of a good harvest. And the story of San Isidro goes that he was such a faithful servant of God, and he would attend mass even if he had a lot of work to do on his garden. And he's a role, he's a role model for the faithful because most often you're tempted to skip prayer and mass because you have so much work to do in the spring. And the story goes that he was so faithful that angels showed up to work in his fields. And so if you see the traditional depiction of San Isidro, you won't just see his image, but you'll see the angels working the, the plow. And so it's, it's a, it's a, he's an important um, uh, patron saint culturally. And it's, it's very timely to, to be um, expressing that, that spirituality and culture during this time of year in the spring when people are planting. And usually people will do processions um, if he's the patron saint of their parish. And in other places, um, even if he isn't the patron saint of their parish, if it's a traditional agricultural community, they'll do a, a ceremony, a blessing of the water or blessing of the field. And um, this year was different, obviously because of the pandemic. And as the pandemic started to sink in, um, we started to wonder what was gonna happen for Dia de San Isidro because we didn't know how long the stay-at-home orders would last. And um, as soon as we got into late April, we realized that there probably wouldn't be any religious ceremonies that were in person unless they were really small and informal. And so this year, um, unlike past years, we weren't able to do these processions in mass the way they're normally done. Um, some of the more popular um, Ceremonies are in the South Valley in Albuquerque, the Holy Family Parish, and I think St. Dan's Parish both do big processions. And this year they didn't have the mass and the processions, but there was a small quiet ceremony where there was a, the um, local leadership of the parish and community came together to, to pass on the santo to the new mayordomos. And so they had a small ceremony there that I'm aware of, and they actually did, they did it on Facebook Live. So that's probably the first time I can think of that there's been a, a San Isidro blessing and ceremony on Facebook. So that's something historic during the, the pandemic. Uh, one thing that we did as NMA Aches, we're a statewide organization and not tied to any one community or, or, or ceremony. We did an online Zoom 
event to honor San Isidro and to have a very informal blessing. And it was mainly to connect people because this is still a really important time in people's lives. If you're planting gardens, you're, if you're, um, you have larger crops, this is an extremely significant time in the year and San Isidro is a big part of that. So we wanted to hold the space and make sure people still had that opportunity to connect around something meaningful, which in this case was, was the feast day of San Isidro. So we had a Zoom event and there were close to 60 people. We had musicians. Um, one important thing that, that you hear traditionally at these ceremonies is the alabanza, the San Isidro. And the alabanza is um, usually something that you would hear with a hermandad, the penitentes in the communities. Um, but it's also something that, that has become more traditional as part of San Isidro blessings. So an alabanza is like a long prayer that's, that you sing a cappella. And so that we had that <clears throat> and we had some wise words and blessings from elders and um, we also had a person who's a mardomo of a parish um, or a small chapel in, in Santa Fe talk about what they normally do for their blessing. So we tried to make it more of a storytelling session and to keep the, the tradition alive, even if it's virtual in the hope that by next year we can resume the, the tradition. So we often talk about acequias and acequia communities in New Mexico as symbols of resilience. And I think um, they're more than symbolic as well. And especially as we're all home these days because of COVID-19 and thinking more about our food and where it comes from and who grows it. What lessons do acequia traditions and acequia communities have for all of New Mexico? Sequias are, are more important than ever because the, 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 the traditions of staying close to the land and of taking care of the water have suddenly come into the limelight because of the importance of local food systems. And for people who have lived their lives in a way that they could stay connected, it's, it's suddenly has um, been a, a very revealing time because the industrial food system is showing its flaws and there's actually cracks in what you know, people call the supply chain for the, the global and, and um, industrial food system. And there's a lot more, more consciousness or awareness about where our food comes from. And for, for Asekias, this has been um, a lifelong um, awareness. It's something that we've always believed that local food systems are always important. You know, they've always been important to us. And now with the pandemic and renewed focus and attention on the importance of local food systems, I think that there's broader awareness that we, that it is important to keep our farmland um, intact and not developed over. It's, it is important to keep water and agriculture because growing food is important um, not just from a cultural standpoint, which is something we do, they do make the argument all the time, but that there's a, a, a real purpose to it, that we, we do have the potential to grow food locally. And when the, the 
more industrial supply chain, it runs into problems. Um, local farmers are, are having an easier time adapting to local needs and they're not as susceptible to those um, vulnerabilities that are in the industrial food system. So I, I think what ASECAs have to teach um, the broader community is, is the, same, the same that we always have, which is that it's important to stay connected to the land. It's important to be sustainable, to, um, to live within our means in terms of, of water um, and to take care of those resources because they're, they're important to taking care of us. And our life, our ability to live here, our viability as communities is connected to our ability to, and our, our intention to be good stewards of our land and our water. And then it's all connected. Well, Paula Garcia, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, now time to switch as previously promised to election coverage. Next Tuesday is primary day here in New Mexico. We've talked about how a lot of the focus has shifted to absentee voting and we talked last week on the show, sort of broke down some of the key federal races, primary races that will really shape how the general election plays out here in the fall. This week with the line panel, we wanted to shift to some of the legislative races, uh, key legislative races, close races, uh, races that uh, we'll, I'll be keeping an eye on next Tuesday as the results come in. We will, of course, have full wrap up of the results and implications and looking forward to the general election uh, next week on the show, but we wanted to preview some of that, give you some ideas of what to be paying attention to as the results start to come in. We uh, have been doing uh, a lot of coverage on this, and, and you probably remember, but there is talk because of the way absentee ballot tabulation works that it actually might delay some of the results from what we're used to. It may be a day or two before we have final results, and especially some of the close races. You'll hear about that a little later in the show as well. But right now, here's back to Gene Grant and the line for discussion on some of the legislative races. We're tracking important races and themes for the June 2nd primaries. All 112 legislative seats are up for re-election this November, as you know. There's a concerted effort by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to oust some more conservative Democratic senators, big names like Senate President Pro Tem Mary Kay Papin, John Arthur Smith, Joe Cervantes, Clemente Sanchez. They cast votes on abortion, marijuana, early childhood education that progressives are not loving. And Laura, some of these challengers and challenges are more viable than others. Are any of these senators truly vulnerable when you get down to it, when you cast out in the future? Well, I think that the difficult thing right now is to determine um, the turnout. We've already seen an increase in um, absentee ballots that have been requested and returned compared to other years. So the question is, will there be an equal number of people who turn out in person uh, or even an early vote as we've seen in past years? Mm -hmm. um, and if so, then it could really be one of those things that's up for grabs. Um, typically, most elections favor the incumbents. But I know a lot of these progressive groups are going above and beyond to target specific um, districts like John Arthur um, Smith in, down in my neck of the woods in Deming. Um, also, uh, Mary Kay Papin is on the top of that list. And so uh, it really it's interesting because you see basically people who have been in office for a long time, have a lot of experience 
And I think there's an argument to be made that for those individuals that have had that experience, um, going into a very uncertain time with a special session coming up with another session, as Diane remarked previously in the, in the previous um, segment about going into the, the regular session and having to do very, make very tough decisions, it's interesting to, to see people trying to take on these um, incumbents that have had years and years of experience in making really tough decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really has come down to sort of a social issue and um, some of the messaging may be um, uh, appeal, like may appeal to certain new voters, in particular young people, um, and the issue of increased um, early education has continued to be uh, a drumbeat for these progressive groups. But again, you know, some folks go back to the argument. Well, um, you know, if any, if there ever was a rainy day, we're dealing with it right now. So the idea of sort of taking more money out of our rainy day fund, our permanent funds, to put into more spending. Um, for some conservative Democrats, I think in those areas, that might be too difficult to pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there's, um, you know, I think in this election, everybody's vulnerable at some level, but I think we'll also see which ones of those incumbents actually have a strong ground game. Yeah. The other thing to think about is that uh, most of those incumbents haven't had a very a real race in a long time. And certainly having to do things remotely and by email and by Zoom is very foreign to a lot of them. So that may be a factor as well. Dave, pick up on that. And a lot of interesting dynamics now about how to campaign, where to campaign, all that kind of thing. Yes. I mean, basically all the rules have been thrown out the door. We are looking at, you know, we, no one knows how to campaign. You cannot have a, a house party. You cannot really have anything. Apparently it has worked to be phone canvassing. People are actually answering their phone. I'm dubious that that's true, but maybe it's true. Um, but but one of the things that I was reading, the New Mexico Political Report was talking about how, you know, some of the less conservative Democrats were complaining because the the older Democrats or the more experienced Democrats had made choices about the abortion law, you know, and things about pot and, and all of these kind of issues. And I thought to myself, you know, I agree. I mean, I'm a lefty, I'm a liberal Democrat, but on the other hand, you know, Strangely enough, all of the major issues changed in the middle of these races. The COVID crisis hit, the pandemic hit. I'm not sure, when you look at what John Arthur Smith did, for example, he's kept the state's bond rating very high, which keeps our money cheap. And so, you know, and and the, the only thing, that the other thing that I kept thinking was maybe we're fighting the wrong battle. People are concerned. What is my future? How am I going to eat? What's happening with rent? Where is federal money coming? Are we going to get more stimulus? Are we going to get less stimulus? People's issues have become very personal and very economic. And I'm wondering if new and sort of the, the new sort of, you know, upstarts are, are addressing the issues that people in the middle of the race became the most most prominent, which was, how am I going to feed myself and my family? I'm not sure they have. Good points there. That's very interesting. Hey, Diane, two Republican senators have a primary challenge from sitting House Republicans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Greg Wolfer faces Rep. Uh, David Gallegos and Jim White mm-hmm. uh, up against Rep. Greg Schmidis. I mean, what's the dynamic driving that in, in your view? Well, there's two things. One is you could listen to the gossip and you say that it's uh, the Republican Party who's been out there and, and, and instigated all this. I don't know whether that's true or not. They okay. have said no. So maybe. My belief is is one thing in the race down with, uh, with Senator Fulford is uh, Representative put his name in the hat for that Senate position when it was open, when Senator Lavelle retired. The governor did not appoint him. 
he appointed and he was in the house at the time. So he had some experience and his belief was he should have been appointed to the Senate seat. Uh, he was very unhappy about it. So he said, uh, I'm going to just run for the seat. So in that case, that was a personal decision mm -hmm. in what he wanted to do up here in the Southeast Heights and, uh, Four Hills and the East Mountain against Jim White. Jim White is an incredible senator. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound like I'm endorsing him or anything, but he's done an incredible job. He understands the process better than most people. He was in the House first, remember. So he's had that experience and he knows how to uh, get things done. But he made in what... Uh, Representative Smeeties and some arch, arch, arch conservatives believe he made some wrong votes. And so they said, we want somebody who's more conservative or truly conservative. What they don't realize is that ability that Mr. Senator White has, you have to be able in a, in a Senate where you're the minority party, you have to be able to work with the other side and get things done. And sometimes you vote for a bill like a budget Mm -hmm. because something's in it that your constituents need. And you have to, you can't vote against what right. you have asked for. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, I, having been a member of the Senate, hope very much that the senators retain their position, but it's it's tearing up the Republican party. And down it's, I mean, there have been some really scorching things said about the two incumbents mm -hmm. and, and what I can't can never forget is uh, the two House members are also incumbents. Right. Why are we not going back and being really nasty? And I finally saw one Facebook that called attention to something that one of the House members had done. So, but it's breaking up the Republicans in those districts, mm -hmm. and those are pretty strong Republican districts in most cases. That's going to bear so, watching. That last point. You yeah, just, bears watching for sure. Yep. Hey, Laura, uh, 2018, big blue wave, no doubt, big gains for Democrats in the House. A, a very obvious question I've got here. Can Republicans win some of those seats back? Are the dynamics set up for something like that? Um, well, I think it's, as with everything, all politics is local. So I think you will see um, certain areas that could flip. Uh, but I think that the momentum, especially with um, you know the White House and all the negativity around the response to COVID, and there's just so much, there's still a lot of polar, polarization, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you see actually both sides in the primary, even in the Democratic primary, using Trump analogies yes. in some of these districts, which I find really interesting. And so I think you still see momentum behind, um, certainly behind progressive candidates. Mm -hmm. um, the AOC types, the uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez type, you know, radical kind of uh, lefty is still, I think there's pockets of support for that. Mm -hmm. But I think in this election, too, there's a lot of fear and people are are afraid for themselves, for their families, for their future. Um, and so there's also an element of, you know, wanting to have somebody who's experienced, who uh, is stable, who's, as Dave brought up, who's able to um, make sure that our bond rating stays high, that we're able to um, pay for our bills as a state. Mm -hmm. And that really comes with experience. And right. I think what's also interesting is some of these um, folks that are being targeted, at least in the Democratic primary for the Senate, they hold ch important chairmanships. And so if those people end up getting um, unseated in the primary and th their opponents may or may not make it through the general, 
And then that particular district no longer has the clout of having a chair, a chairperson, you know, in their district representing them. And that means a, a lot to some of those. That's voters. an excellent point. That's an excellent point. I really appreciate that. Let me stay with you, Laura, for one more. Let me throw a name out. You mentioned, um, you know, senators having some stress. Hey, John Sapien's not running in his district in the North Valley. Could flip Republican when you really think about it. And then the opposite, Bill Payne's seat in Albuquerque could flip Democrat. Are any of those scenarios likely in your in your view? Well, it's certainly possible. Yeah. Um, I think that North Valley district is interesting because it also has parts of Bernalillo. Um, yes. and, and Bernalillo in Sandoval County, um, you know, there's there's uh, some conservative areas, but in a primary, again, remember, for both sides, you get the more polarized people who tend to be the voters. And so for the Democratic uh, primary, you're going to see the more radical folks um, come out, or not radical, I should say more progressive um, people who are who are definitely more liberal, they're going to be voting for their person, and that then pins them against um, somebody who may be um, easier to appeal to the moderates in that district. Because remember, once you start mixing in those declined estates, those independents, um, you know, all bets are off. Like it's not, it's no longer a party issue for either side. It's about talking to that moderate voter. Um, and so the more moderate of the two that come out of the primary, regardless, is going to probably be in a better position to speak to those voters. You just hit it. You just hit it right there. That's interesting. Right. David, uh, one race I find interesting is uh, up in Santa Fe County, rural Santa Fe County, Matthew McQueen facing Bruce King's granddaughter, Becky right. Spindle. Very interesting. Name power. Does that mean something in a COVID-19 era? Again, you know, uh, Matt McQueen is a good legislator. He's been he's been well liked. You mm -hmm. know, she comes from a famous New Mexico family. I think it's fair to say that mm -hmm. she probably does have name recognition. I, I I would you know I do not procrastinate. You know, I don't want to say who I think is going to win out there. All bets are off. The only thing that I would say was we elected Franklin Roosevelt four times when we had the Great Depression and World right. War II. Incumbency may be your friend here, so. Yeah. That's a very interesting race to watch, though. Thank you guys so much for your thoughts on this. We're going to have so much for highlights next week, that's for sure. A lot of groups, a lot of folks in New Mexico who pay close attention to elections here and how they are carried out and how they are run. We're thrilled this week to be joined by a couple of those folks. Gabe Sanchez, UNM political science professor as well as Heather Ferguson with Common Cause New Mexico. We talked about this earlier, but they joined correspondent Gwyneth Dolan this week to talk about some key issues in the primary election this coming Tuesday, a big one again being the limited voting centers. The voting center is something we moved to a few years ago where basically you could go to, instead of having one dedicated polling place where you had to go to vote on election day, you could go to any of the voting centers in your county and be able to vote. They have the different ballots there so they could get you the appropriate ballot and you could vote at any of those places. But a lot of those were shuttled in the efforts to curb COVID-19 and protect voters from that as well as the poll workers. And you're gonna hear a lot about how that is negatively impacting um, specific communities in New Mexico. And as well, talking a little bit about how this can be sort of a testing ground and a way to learn some lessons if we're in the same boat in November during a general election. So here now is correspondent Gwyneth Dolan. My guests today are Heather Ferguson, the Executive Director of Common Cause New Mexico, and Dr. Gabriel Sanchez, a Professor of Political Science at UNM. Welcome. 
Thanks for having um, us. It'll, it's you a pleasure. Are very, Thanks for having me. Very welcome. Election day is Tuesday, June 2nd, but between absentee ballots and early voting, it's been going on for a while now during a pandemic in which we're supposed to be staying at home and social distancing. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Heather, one thing is that there are far fewer places to vote in this election. In Sandoval County, for example, they were supposed to have 21 early vote centers and they knocked it down to 11. How is this impacting people's ability to vote? Well, Sandoval County is a special situation. You not only have the decrease of the amount of voting centers, which is what is legally required for the minimum legal requirement for the population out in that area, but to enhance that, um, Sandoval County also services seven tribes, pueblos, and nations. And so, in for instance, for Z the Zia Pueblo that's out there, um, typically there would be at least several voting sites, early early day voting sites, as well as election day voting sites that would be within the Zia Pueblo. However, um, due to the public health crisis and the tribal official orders, only residents are allowed to go into the Zia Pueblo. And so they do not have any on-site voting locations, which will therefore force the folks who don't already have an absentee ballot to have to go to an outside location. Um, Bernalillo High School, for example, is one of the nearest locations that they can go to, and they'll have to vote in person. And that's that, half an hour away? I believe so, yeah. And it's, it's also, it's compounded by the fact that um, their mail service was also interrupted because since the mail carriers couldn't gain access to the post boxes that are on the Pueblo, their mail was then moved to a mailbox that is outside of the Pueblo where they have to go retrieve their mail and drop things off to be mailed. So you build in another inherent delay for the absentee ballot process there. Um, that wasn't there before we had to encounter the issues with the pandemic. And and just to clarify, the issue is with the early vote centers, the law says that anyone who lives in that county, anyone who lives in Sandoval County, in Rio Rancho or anywhere, needs to be able to vote at any of the convenience centers. So if Zia or Cochiti or San Felipe are closed, um, and Santa Ana, those are all in Sandoval County, I think, then they're not allowing anyone from the county to come in. And that's why they said some of them, they didn't want early vote centers. It's a, it's a tension between trying to keep your community safe and promote voting. And, and we're kind of stuck in the middle, aren't we? It is, but also state law requires that anyone can access a voting site. And so they also, following state law, could not put the early voting sites or the election day voting sites inside the Pueblo where only residents of the Pueblo would be able to access those voting sites. Right. Gabe, you've done some research uh, or you're familiar with it, I hope, on what happens when there are fewer polling sites. What does that do to turnout? Do way fewer people vote? Yeah, great, great question. I think you you provided really the context in which we're operating, which is on one hand advancing public health protocols, which is incredibly important, but the other opening up access to practice democracy. And I think the literature and political science makes pretty clear anytime you increase the costs associated with voting, i.e. figuring out where can I vote and traveling further to be able to vote, you do see a decrease in turnout. That's absolutely 100% clear. However, I'm a little less worried in this context during a primary than I would be in the general election. 
for a couple of reasons. People always forget about this. We're really talking about two different electorates. During the primary, much more highly informed voters, by definition, much more partisan voters. Those folks are much more likely to turn out and go through the steps of figuring out how to circumvent some of these obstacles, like not having as many polling locations. If we're talking about the same context in the fall, I definitely would suggest much greater drop in turnout. So will it be real and, and something that we could actually measure in terms of a decrease in turnout? Absolutely. And unfortunately, it's often low resource voters, right? Particularly if we're talking about racial and ethnic minorities, younger voters, lower income voters, those are the folks where you're gonna see the most marked impact on turnout. Heather, you know, absentee voting is up big. It's up 325% over the 2016 primary. Three times as many people have voted by mail in this primary than did, uh, than have voted early in person. A lot of people like it. I like it. I voted absentee this year just to check it out and I didn't really wanna leave my house. I, and I loved it. I haven't done it in decades, but I really enjoyed having the time to kind of sit and think about it and look things up. Um, but I'm not every voter and I recognize that. What other kinds of problems are you seeing with voting by mail? You mentioned Zia Pueblo where they were not able to get their mail. I know that although the postal service was not able to get into Zia, I talked to the folks at uh, Kiwa Santa Domingo, and they told me they were letting mail trucks through, um, but they had to go through a screening process, and that's fine, although it, it causes some delays. Are you seeing delays? Um, we're seeing delays across the state, though, and I don't, but what I've been able to see so far from at least some of the personal stories that we've been gathering through the election protection program that we run is that the delays are actually happening with the postal service. They're not delays coming out of the county clerk's office. The county clerk's offices are showing that they have, you know, gotten things out into the mail. We're not dealing with um, out-of-state third-party vendors, um, which I know several states are actually dealing with. Georgia, for one, actually is getting their absentee ballots mailed to them from a third-party printer in Arizona. Um, so we're not even dealing with an interstate problem. We're dealing with just the postal service and how they operate here in New Mexico. And that's been causing significant delays. My ballot alone took nine days to get from the county clerk's office in downtown Albuquerque to my home up in the Heights. How do you know it took nine days? So when you go onto the Secretary of State's website, you can actually see what day you they had mailed your ballot. And I happened to request mine extra early just so I would be in the queue, um, but it'll show you when it got mailed so that you can actually track, you know, of course, checking your mail every day and see when it got there. I have other stories from Santa Fe and some other places where it's taken two weeks. And I talked to the San Juan County clerk this week who told me they are required to send those out the day they get them, I think. So it's not like they're sitting there, we don't think. They're, they're, they're pushing them out, but for a variety of reasons, having trouble with the mail. Gabe, you have looked at how voting by mail impacts certain communities, particularly Native American communities. What have you found? Well, I think in general, when we're thinking about racial and ethnic communities, uh, for a number of reasons, racial and ethnic minorities tend to prefer to vote in person. Just think about generations of folks that didn't have access to that right, how much energy went into that. And so some, somewhat the symbolism of being able to go with your community to vote in person is part of the issue. The other is information, right? Recognizing that minorities, particularly here in New Mexico, move and change addresses to a much greater extent than white 
eligible voters do. All that just adds more complication and more costs associated with participating uh, through the mail. Um, what I'm actually seeing here in New Mexico, which is reflective of our national polling, early numbers suggest that Republicans in the state have been more likely to vote in person early, Democrats more likely to vote by mail. I think that's largely driven by messaging coming out of the White House, which suggests either fraud is, is a problem with mail-based voting or that COVID really isn't as something scary to be worried about as many other folks do. Our polling suggests naturally Democrats are much more likely to be worried about getting sick from going to vote in person than Republicans are. So I think that's being reflected in the early numbers. And we'll see if that has any implications for actual election outcomes as we start to tabulate things on Tuesday. I'll tell everybody, we're not gonna have election results in some of these tight races Tuesday night, given everything you've heard already about the time lag and, and all those things. I guarantee you on any of these tight races, they're gonna be counting some of those mail ballots. Again, as you noted, historic mail use voting in the state of New Mexico, that's gonna take longer to tabulate. So it's gonna give us a, at least a little bit more to talk about us politicos uh, into Wednesday and Thursday. And it's so many more. I think we've had 100,000 people vote absentee so far. And it's like three times what we saw last time. So, but they are allowed to start counting early, aren't they, Heather? They, well, not in the way that they are tabulating and counting votes. No, they are able to but set aside. Open them up. Right. And so that's a key issue as well. And um, to what Professor Sanchez was saying about the delays that are put in here, um, right now also in our current state law, you can what's called adjudicate your ballot. So if your ballot has um, an issue, there's a signature missing, um, you have a chance to remedy your ballot up into the county canvas. But now also in the law, you can adjudicate your ballot up to the state canvas if you want to go in there and remedy your ballot and have it still be counted for this election. And so that can build in a lot more delays when you're dealing, especially with a very close race. They're not going to want to call it. Heather Ferguson and Gabriel Sanchez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Be safe, be healthy. That's it for this week's show, but want to encourage if you don't already to follow us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, or Instagram. We're in all of those places. Point you especially to Facebook this week where we had a Facebook Live on Friday midday, uh, building on the conversation about uh, more opening of business here in New Mexico, specifically the restaurant business. Host Gene Grant got some restaurant tours from the Santa Fe area where that's such a huge part of the local economy there and talking about how they are doing and coping uh, with being closed down and looking at reopening and, and how it may change the shape of their industry and their business moving forward as they look for ways to innovate and get that business back that they've lost for the last couple months here in New Mexico. So I encourage you to go check that out. Also, while you're there, if you're not already a member of the Focus on New Mexico page, we encourage you to um, sign up for that today as well. We have a lot of great conversations there. We'll be looking for people next week probably to talk about their reflections on the primary election results. So we encourage you to do that. And we hope you have a terrific weekend. You stay safe, you stay healthy, and we'll see you next week on New Mexico in Focus.